Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Read with Michelle Martin on Your Money, only on Money FM 89.3. Dr. Paul Subramaniam is the founder of Law Asia, and he's put together a book of a medical pioneer here in Singapore that few of us may know about. But those in the medical line often refer to as Singapore's father of tuberculosis, a man who was the founder and first chairman of the Singapore Medical Research Council, a man who was instrumental in Singapore's fight against tuberculosis, and a key figure responsible for the ban on smoking in public places in Singapore. We're going to find out more about the life of the late Dr. J.M.J. Supermanium through the voice of Dr. Paul Supermanium, co-author of the book He Saved Thousands, the story of Dr. J.M.J. Supermanium. Dr. Paul, welcome to Read and thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on this program. Thank you for inviting me. I wonder if you can share a little of your link with Dr. J.M.J. Supermanium and then tell us about his role shaping the public health system here in Singapore. Two limbs to that question. The first is my role. Well, I mean, I was privileged and honored to be his son, and I learned a lot from him. I think the influence of a father can be extremely meaningful. And to me, having him as an example and what he did for public service, his commitment to the nation, his commitment to the people of this country was, and actually seeing how that morphed from the early 60s when we were first a colony, then part of Malaysia, and then independence, that can-do attitude. All of those things left a deep imprint on me. And as a result of that, I felt actually very strongly that there is a responsibility for each of us to put nation before self. And I think that's something I learned from him. His contributions to public health in Singapore are many and very widespread. They span from the early 1950s. He became a doctor in 1951. Mm-hmm. He was part of the generation that went up to medical school just before the war. He started in 1940. He was in his second year when we were bombed by the Japanese. He joined the British Medical Auxiliary and the day after Pearl Harbor was bombed and as a volunteer. And he then was shelled the day before the surrender. He smuggled medicines for British prisoners. He was a war casualty. He was decorated for his gallantry by King George. And he took great personal risks during the war to help British prisoners. So he had actually an interesting period in his life during the war. And he then had to restart medical school when the reset button was pressed in 1946. And all of them who had a few years of medicine had to restart right at the beginning. Mm. So he started again and finished in 1951. And he then almost immediately started making an impact as one of the bright young doctors. In 1950, at that time, there was a program that was gradually being implemented called Malayanization. And David Marshall actually had an important role in that together with the then governor, Sir William Good. And in 1955, they picked him to be one of two doctors that was sent off to the UK to do specialist training. He was actually going to do obstetrics and gynecology, but TB was the biggest killer. And David Marshall said to him, look, I want you to do this. Go and acquire the right skills and come back and make an impact on TB in this country. It's interesting because, of course, David Marshall had, which many people may not know, had had TB as a boy. 
Hmm. had gone off to Switzerland for a year to be in a sanatorium. His wife, Jean Marshall, in fact, shared that with me. And so he knew acutely what it was like to be a TB sufferer, but he was privileged. But there were many in this country who were not and were dying from it. It was the number one killer. So my father went off and had the privilege. He was meant to just go for a short stint, do the training and come back. But my mother joined him shortly after he went and got pregnant with me. And it was an unstable pregnancy. So in the end, she could not travel. And so he was allowed to do a longer stint and spent between 1955 and 1957 in the UK. So he did his training. He worked with John Crofton, who was the world authority on tuberculosis, became the world authority in Edinburgh. And he worked with Professor Heath in Cardiff. But not only did he do the training, but after he got his fellowship from Glasgow, his membership from Edinburgh, and his TB training in Cardiff, he stayed on and practiced working in the Edinburgh TB team and also at the Brompton Hospital in London and also did a short stint at the Moorfield. So he'd actually worked as a specialist in the UK, which was unusual mm. at that time. And when he came back mm -hmm. in 1958-57, he realized that the problems actually were not being addressed in the way that he felt was appropriate. And he went to the governor, who was then, I believe, Robin Black and said, look, we need to do something about it. He was then in his 30s, my father. I think he was 36, 37. And that led to the launch of the national X-ray campaign where people were across the country were given these X-rays. They were done at stations. There was a mobile platform of X-rays. And people needed to be taught about X-rays. You know, they feared these big machines. Mm. So he was instrumental in getting the national X-ray program started, which then meant you identified people who had tuberculosis and other ailments. And he also was instrumental in getting BCG made compulsory because he believed that TB treatment really was not just the actual treatment. And they worked, he headed the Tuberculosis Research Council and he became a world authority. And in fact, in working in TB, he came up with a treatment called rifamicin, which worked with the Edinburgh treatment, but his addition of rifamicin rendered TB patients non-infective, and it became the gold standard, not just in Singapore, but in much of the third world. And as a result of that, it saved not just thousands here, but millions globally. And that appears in a book published by Dr. Mary Dobson, who was the head of medical history at Oxford and now a medical historian at Cambridge. So I think the work that he did involved not just prevention, which he believed very strongly in, mm -hmm. but also doing research, cutting-end research. So he was a doctor, he was an administrator, but he was also a clinician researcher. And he thought all doctors needed to do research and be constantly upgrading themselves. Mm -hmm. And he came up with his novel treatment, working with the best minds in the world. I think Mary Dobson's book refers to the three world authorities in the late 50s and early 60s on TB being Sir John Crofton in Edinburgh, Wallace Fox in Africa and India, who was also a co-chair of the British Medical Research Council in TB, and my father in Asia, who had the privilege then of also being a co-chairman mm. of the Medical Research Council mm. he worked. So I think he showed when we had very little resources that you could address in a concerted way the biggest killer. And within a few years of his leading this initiative, it had come down from being the number one killer to below the top ten. Yes, tuberculosis at the time is killing about 2,000 people. Singapore is a developing country. Here we are at this point in history battling an outbreak. So I wonder if there is anything you think we can learn from how your father 
as a medical expert approach TB that is relevant to how public health systems could approach the coronavirus today? Yeah, absolutely. I think there are a lot of lessons that can be learned. I mean, the first, and this is very interesting, is that he believed that you could not fight a number one killer unless he waged a hearts and minds battle. And so he quickly got the whole of society galvanized by speeches he made, by interviews he gave to the press. He was adept at harnessing the media to get the message across that if we all, as a country, as citizens, did not do our part, we could not win the battle. And I think it's exactly the same with the coronavirus. And he gave people hope to stick to the script that was being practiced. In other words, the people were very frightened to lose their jobs. They were frightened to come forward for treatment, mm. and people were living in overcrowded you know, shop houses, and there were a number of slums. And I'm going to read, if I could, a press interview he gave in 1961 to the Free Press in Singapore. And he says, you know, what is really important is to raise the standard of living of people in the way of improved diet, better housing, working conditions, searching for the infected, rendering them, having a ability for them to be assured that they'll go back to their jobs and to start rehabilitation. But it was a hearts and minds thing. And he used the press to get people to understand that if they came for treatment, they were not going to lose their jobs. He worked to get workers' compensation legislation with Ivan Baptist put into place. And he geared up the nation for a long slog. They also set up the Research Council to research treatments. And, you know, he said to the people, if you trust the government and the policies they're implementing and come forward, Mm -hmm. government will not let you down. And I think that hold hearts and minds approach is something that is also now relevant for coronavirus. But the important thing is he also then at the research end rendered people non-infective. So that's really what we need with coronavirus. We need the research and cutting end. Eventually a vaccine, but for now we also need to find a way in which an infected person does not infect others. And that's what he was able to do with his novel treatment that he developed. You talked about public health. I mean, he, of course, ended up sort of being the Deputy Permanent Secretary for Health over many years in the 70s, and he was instrumental in the development of Tantok Singh from a small little chest hospital to the largest hospital in Singapore, General Hospital. He introduced cardiothoracic medicine in the country, neurosurgery, and, you know, had a very strong imprimatur on a number of people. He brought in foreign talent. He really believed that we need the best from around the world, and he encouraged doctors even from the U.K., to move here, one of whom became, you know, eventually a Professor Sir Arul Kumaran, who returned to Britain and became president of the British Medical Association. But his first big break was when he was hired out of the UK by my father. And I think Corbyn once says in his uh, foreword to the book, mm-hmm. um, Dr. Supramaniam's life story is a valuable addition to Singapore's collective memories as we mark the bicentennial. His story is one of our pioneer generation that came of age during the war, fought for independence in who, through sheer grit, determined the fate of that of Singapore. Indeed. I read a post from Corbyn Wan saying that when Mr. Kaur started his civil service career in 1978, your late father was then Deputy Director of Medical Services in MOH and soon to retire. So uh, there was passing uh, on, I think, you know, of the candle, so to speak. I wonder if you could share with us one thing that you hope that readers are going to take from your forensically detailed book. Well, you know, it's an interesting book because it's got a history. It's juxtaposed in the history of Singapore, and it goes back and covers 150 years. And so 
it was relevant to come out in the bicentennial, and of course it's a story of Tamil person, but when Mr. Narvan asked me to write this book, he thought it would be an inspiration for the younger generation and also something that would inspire the community. My father was a strong believer in social upliftment. I think it, you can see clearly that he was impacted by his father, who had a strong social conscience and was a community leader, founded the Salon Tamils Association in 1909, and had been a teacher in ACS from the 1890s. So it spans a period of history. And I think what you see is that generation had grit. They were inspired to do their best for Singapore. Mm. And I think that strong sense that of belief that each of us can make a difference. And I think there are quotes in the book that, you know, one person can make a difference, everyone should try. The importance of a moral compass. He was, my father had a very strong moral compass. He believed that you don't seek, you know, aggrandizement here. Your tribute really is the legacy you leave and the benefit you've left for the community at large. And I think what comes across also in the book, I hope, is that there is a responsibility on parents. Mm. We play a crucial role in shaping the next generation. That comes across in the book. My father was influenced by his father, and I hope that, you know, my father's sort of example was something that benefited us as his children. Certainly, I mean, I stayed on and did 16 years as in NS after the stipulated age 40 as a volunteer to contribute as a key appointment holder because that was the right thing to do. Right. And I think values also matter enormously. And to him, having values that transcend your individual personal goals and are collective values of a community at large matter enormously. Well, it's been a privilege speaking with you and thank you for taking us through the pages of the book that I'm reading today, He Saved Thousands, a story of Dr. J.M.J. Subramaniam. You just heard their co-author and his son, Dr. Paul Subramaniam. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.